A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means that adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. Hey friends, Kevin here. Before we begin this podcast, I wanted to share with you something really, really cool. Here's a sneak peek at my friend's new podcast, Kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope is a podcast about identity, faith, and social engagement in these dangerous times, and it's going to feature conversations with some really incredible people. Here's the season one trailer. Welcome to Kaleidoscope. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. So I'm the only brown guy at this white Christian party, and this drunk guy stumbles towards me. He looks at the beanie I'm wearing, and he says, why don't you take that hat off? You look like a terrorist. He very calmly took the Bible and then tapped on it and, and showed me the verses that, you know, spoke to women shall have no authority over men in the church. You know, when you, like, are in such a sad, lonely place and you ask your deepest, darkest questions. Like, I'm black, I'm a lesbian, and a Christian. Is there a church for me? I've been reporting on the margins of faith for years. All right, I'm just going to test the sound. And on this podcast, I'll explore questions of identity, existence, and social engagement. Um, So I thought we could just start by talking about the faith of your youth. I'll be hosting conversations with people from across the spectrum of belief and non-belief. And we'll travel to the moments that taught them how to engage life and the world in fulfilling ways. I was like, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to a queer bar as a queer person. And I'm just going to try it on and see how it feels. You realize that you were contributing essentially to white supremacy. It causes you to really second guess what you're giving your life to. Join me and my guests as we expand the conversation about how we can be more fully ourselves. So it did feel kind of weird that my first tattoo wasn't a Christian tattoo, um, but then I have this big gay tattoo. More fully awake. (sighs) It's hard. I mean, it's hard to tell the truth, but it has never seemed more urgent than it does right now. And more fully engaged in this new era. We need to be actually challenging the policies that are hurting the marginalized. You'll feel all the feels. My heart's going like a rabbit. <laughs> and see the constantly changing pattern of existence. There's still so many things that are hard, but now I feel fantastic. So subscribe today and take a look into the kaleidoscope. Let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same. You can find Kaleidoscope across social media at kscopepod. That's kscopepod and at kscopepod.com. And on top of that, you can go back and listen to a really great interview I had with Deborah Jean Lee on A Tiny Revolution on episode 12 called The Beautiful Burden. So yeah, go subscribe to Kaleidoscope in the Apple Podcast Store. Leave it a rating. Share it with your friends. This is going to be a really good one, you guys. Okay, here's the show this week. Hi there, my name is Kevin Garcia, and you're listening to A Tiny Revolution, a podcast about ordinary people living revolutionary lives. Y'all, happy Black History Month to all of my black friends out there. I'm going to be real with y'all. I've gotten pretty much a PhD level education from doing something as simple as listening to black voices in media, on Twitter, YouTube, the people in my circles. Seriously, um, black friends 
from across the country. I am indebted to you for all that you've done for me in my own work and how you support me and correct me and call me out when I need to. And I pray that every single day uh, I'm confronting my own racism and that I, I hope to strive to be a better ally. So that's all I'm going to say about that is that I'm just really thankful for all of my black friends out there who teach me so much. Um, so in honor of Black History Month, I wanted to share some encore episodes featuring conversations I've had with my black friends on this podcast who are making black history here and now. So every week in the month of February, you are going to be getting an encore episode, uh, some from way back when I started this podcast and some you may have heard more recently in the past few months. Either way, they're inspirational, educational, and everything you've ever wanted, to be honest. <laughs> so thanks for joining me for uh, Black History Month. And uh, here is an encore episode. Um, so we're just going to jump right into my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. It was super fun sitting down with him. I've been a fan of Broderick's really since I came across him on Twitter. And what I think is funny, um, and you'll hear him say this in our conversation, is that He's not really out, like, even if he didn't have the following that he did, he'd still be saying and doing the things that he's doing because it just kind of naturally flows from who he is. So I'm a big fan, but a little bit about him. He is a 2015 graduate of the Virginia Theological Seminary and is the curate at Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He offers lectures and facilitates conversations at the intersections of social media, American history, queer theology, black theology, human rights, and racial justice. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Religion News Service, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, and he was also the keynote at GCN last year, which you can still view at gaychristian.net. And he hosts a really killer podcast called Theology Live, where he talks to everyone from artists to historians about what theology looks like in our everyday lives. And you can check that out in the podcast store. But here we go. This is my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. And just a note about the recording, there's a little bit of background noise in the beginning, but don't mind it. It'll be gone in just a few minutes. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas uh, with my parents, and I have one brother who is two years younger than me. In a very kind of large extended family, mm -hmm. Um, my mom was raised by her mother and my dad was raised by his two parents and my grand, my three grandparents lived maybe five minutes away from us. So we never had to go to daycare. Um, they always picked us up from school and if they couldn't pick us up, then an aunt picked us up or a cousin. Um, so I was surrounded by lots of love as a child and could feel that. And we grew up in a um, black missionary Baptist church hmm. on a poorer side of town from where I grew up. It was the church that my mom was baptized in and that my parents were married in and that my grandmother was the minister of music at wow. for 40 years. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, so I grew up singing in my grandmother's choir and... You know, we would run down to the piano after the service, you know, the two and a half, three hour service. <laughs> of course. And, um, you know, grew up with very spirit filled preaching and singing and music and dancing. And so many of our church members were, you know, what I would understand now as deeply impoverished, but mm. 
there was a resilience and a joy that was contagious in that space. And um, I draw from that every day. You are a um, priest at a Episcopal church now, which is probably quite a quite a difference from your upbringing, right? Yes. What drew you to the Episcopal tradition over any other sort of expression of Christianity? So when I was 13, I started going to a Church of Christ, and they're a mainly white Southern fundamentalist evangelical denomination mm. that is best known for singing a cappella. They don't use instruments because they believe that instruments are forbidden by the New Testament. Really? Yes. And ended up going to a Church of Christ college in Tennessee um, when I was 18. And while there, started reading this Anglican bishop named N.T. Wright. Mm, right. And I thought, well, you know, if I, I would just want to go to any church that is doing what he's saying. Right. And this, you know, these ideas about a new creation and the eighth day of creation and um, the centrality of resurrection and the Paschal mystery and the Christian faith. And so a friend and I went to an Episcopal church and I immediately fell in love with the liturgy and with the Book of Common Prayer, but was not really set on, you know, changing over to a faith that was more hierarchical. And the tradition I came from, they, the ministers were not ordained. Mm -hmm. They only went by brother and they were only men. Right. And um, so I was very kind of put off by calling the priest's father and... Um, you know, the organ music and things like that. So it was kind of a mixed bag for me. <clears throat> but I had, there was a wonderful priest at the parish who really shepherded me through a difficult time of coming to terms with my sexual orientation and reconciling that with faith, mm -hmm. uh, which was really just a series of conversations about reading the Bible. You know, how do you read a read the Bible in a way that doesn't make you feel like shit as a gay person? What a concept. Yes. And um, and how do you read the Bible in a way that is compassionate toward other minority groups? Mm -hmm. And so through that process, I was eventually confirmed in the Episcopal Church in 2010 when I was 20. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I think it, it was. Started. It was the history, it was the connection to history. You know, the Episcopal Church is called Episcopal because of the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop or oversight. And so we have this long, long connection of bishops um, and that we would say goes back to the time of Jesus uh, right. from the apostles. And so really that sacramental connection to a pair of hands that um, rest on your head at your confirmation um, is very powerful to Episcopalians and is what drew me, you know, to this Anglican expression of faith. I think what I like about your work and like your presence is that you're so integrated with yourself, if that makes sense. Like you are very much like I am a black man. I am very much a queer individual. I am a Christian 
and all of these things belong in the, my conversation. I can't leave part of myself at the door. Do you ever find that, like, in your work, that people are asking you to leave cer- certain parts of yourself out of the room, if that makes sense? Yeah. Oh, all the time. Um, it's so funny thinking about various places that I'm invited to speak. I'm always nervous about that sort of desire that a lot of audiences have to parse speakers and parse personalities and stories apart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll see this upsurge in people who will follow me uh, when I'm, you know, when a police shooting happens and I'm tweeting things uh, that resonate with them about Mm pro-blackness. And then three minutes later, I tweet something about being gay and they're gone. You know, they unfollow very quickly. And it's because people, um, one guy a few days ago said, I do believe that LGBT people are, and this is a person who considers himself pro-black, that he believes that LGBT people should be protected under the law, but he does not agree with gay marriage, of course, which is just so, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that you, that people think that in some way that LGBTQ people or that black people that women, trans people, are only deserving of their partial support. And when you have, you know, partial support is not support. Mm. Um, and in really, in many instances, it can be a form of abuse. Right. I had, I had a um, pretty well-known evangelical, evangelical leader send me a message one day that said something to the effect of, you know, I'm defending you to a lot of my friends and I'm assuming that he's talking about white progressive Christian leaders. And I said, you know, I don't need your, I don't need anyone's defense. I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing this for anyone's approval or so that any, you know, so that people will like me. And in some way, I think that that's related to the piece of people. There are people who view me or understand me as a progressive Christian leader when it comes to LGBT stuff, and then they're turned off when I talk about white supremacy. Right. And for me, it's all one, you know, we're, we're really trying to defeat one monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most concise way of referring to that monster is, you know, white heteropatriarchal capitalism. Um, That's a mouthful. It is. It is. And, and not only is it a mouthful, but it's, a toxic combination of mm. oppressions yep. that um, much of white Christian theology really undergirds and supports, uh, whether it knows it or not. You know, you take one dagger to the monster about white supremacy, and people are like, oh, that's great. And you take another dagger to the monster on heteropatriarchy, and they're like, oh, well, that kind of hurt a little bit. Right. And, um, you know, one activist that I really look up to, DeRay McKesson, says, mm-hmm. either you see all of me or you're lying. Ooh, and that's good. Yeah, which I really like. And I I think that about myself. Like either you see all of me, and that is a person who is unapologetically black, unapologetically queer, a priest, a son, a brother, a cousin, um Either you see all of me or you're lying because I'm not going to lie about myself mm-hmm. and about my experiences. And I expect you to be as truthful about my identity as I am. 
and this is one of the saddest things that I hear people say is, um, and it's mainly people who are just coming to terms with sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. And they'll say things like, you know, being gay is only a part of who I am. Oh, it's such and a strange it's like, thing for me to hear too. Yeah. I, it's like, okay, so when you are killed for being gay or, you know, are they only, is only your leg going to die or what? You know, if I'm only killed for, you know, if being black is only part of who I am um, or is only part of who Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and mm-hmm. um, Akai Gurley and all of these other people who have been lynched by police, if they're only part black, then why are, why, why are they all dead? Mm. Um, and that's just something that I, I don't understand. As a black gay clergyman, like with everything that like all the police brutality that's been happening, the church, I think, has kind of done like a shit like overall, like the big C church, especially white evangelicalism has done a shitty job of talking about it. Um, And as somebody who embodies all of these different intersections of Christian, black, gay, what needs to happen in order to start moving people towards actually doing something? I don't know. I think that is a question really for white Christian leaders. Um, I don't know what it will take for them to finally sign on to the liberation of black people or of queer people. I'm not sure. Because we, you know, we thought it was maybe some of the police brutality. We thought maybe it would be the pulse shooting. We thought that, you know, we could go on and on and on. And um, for the most part, many of them are still radio silent about the brutality that we face um, verbally, socially, politically, physically, domestically. I, I don't know. I don't know what it will take. And that's kind of heartbreaking. No, it's not, not kind of, it is. It's just, it's so frustrating for me. Like, I don't understand, like, why people aren't, it's kind of like, there's, what is that phrase? Just like, if you're not enraged, you're not paying attention. People are dying and you're still preaching about, you know, whatever the hell it is you're preaching about. Do you find that what happens in, uh, in the headlines or even in the political realm influences what you teach about on Sundays? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. And I say that with a pause because Mm. um, I don't understand the good news of God in Christ apart from the real world. Right. You know, that, that that God came in Christ to a particular people at a particular time with a specific language, specific accent, specific challenges, a specific context says something about the way that baptized people share in Christ's ministry. So, you know, Christ comes and, you know, comes on the scene in Luke four, proclaiming good news to the poor and liberation for imprisoned people Uh, freedom for people who are enslaved in the context of a Roman empire that's occupying his people. And Paul, St. Paul, St. Peter, the earliest saints and martyrs are constantly speaking about their own social context that they find 
found themselves in. And I think that the church is at its best when it does that, um, mm. that this there isn't some kind of universal kernel core message that's out there. Um, the good news is at its core incarnation that God takes on flesh in Christ. And that says something very specific about the world in which the gospel is preached and which the gospel is announced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I'm out here, you know, in a, in a pulpit on Sunday, espousing these so-called universal truths mm -hmm. of love and of justice and of, you know, godliness and righteousness, you know, I use all these words that have almost no meaning or significance or even the word God, if I'm, you know, up using the, the word God. Right. And it has nothing to say about the world in which I live. It, I'm, I'm doing everyone a disservice. Right. And actually everyone's better off if I just stay at home and take a nap. If the Christian faith does not have something real to say, then it's really wasting everyone's time. And it's no better than some other commercialized, you know, franchise message, some other 30 second um, advertisement on YouTube that's extremely annoying. <laughs> right. Um, that could be played, you know, it's, it's this whole capitalist aspect of the gospel, you know, it can be played in the Philippines and be just as resonant as it is in Tanzania. Hmm. Um, and that's not how the gospel operates. It needs to resonate with people exactly where they are. Um, and it will be offensive to some. It will be wonderful to others. It'll be good news to some. It'll be terrible news for others. Um, the gospel, the good news of God in Christ is not always going to be received or heard in the same way. And it is the task of of baptized people who preach to read their, con you know, read your Bible, read your context, read your people. The Bible is not the only text that needs to be used in a sermon on a Sunday. Say more about that, that last part. Yeah. I mean, the text of our lives, ah. the text of pop culture, the text of contemporary music, what stories are people telling through movies? What Stories are being told on the back page of our newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, what stories are being told but not heard? There's plenty. Any good preacher will know. There's plenty of sermon material in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a matter, much of the time, of the preacher not listening. Right. Uh, and you can't, and that's the thing, you can't hear the Bible in a vacuum. Yep. Come on. Say I that mean, again. you're... You know, you, you have to hear the Bible in the context of your own world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what really draw, you know, drew me and continues to draw me to Anglican Christianity is this piece that the incarnation, Christmas, Epiphany, that whole season is so important to Episcopalians. Right. Because it says something very particular about God, that God is interested in humanity. God is interested in creation. Um, God is not resigned from suffering. God is not removed from oppression. God is in the middle of this mess with us. Mm -hmm. um, people often say that Jesus puts the messy in Messiah. Ooh, that's good. And, uh, and I can 
appreciate that because I don't need a God or a Jesus or a Holy Spirit that is far away. I need something that's imminent, available, accessible uh, to be with me in my suffering now. And um, preaching that is removed from that suffering and oppression uh, perpetuates it, honestly. Could you, like, could you, like, for people who've never heard that sort of term, can you kind of un- unpack that idea, theology as survival? Because I just think it's it's fascinating. And just yeah. really appropriate for the time we live in. Yeah, so I, I noticed in my own writing and Twitter presence and conversations with friends that uh, it would mostly be white cisgender men, whether, I mean, some of them were gay, um, who were very, very deeply critical of liberation theology. Mm-hmm. And, or I guess better said, liberation theologies. And I just couldn't myself to understand what their issue with these theologies were. And it began to dawn on me that they would relegate people like James Cone or Marcella Altos Reed or Emily Towns or other womanist or uh, Muharista or black theologians kind of to the, this hyphenated theology mm-hmm. that they are hyphenated theologians. And then, but Karl Barth, hyphenated theologian. theologian. Yeah. Hyphenated meaning like if you are a black theologian or a queer yes. theologian, not just a theologian, because theologian would just mean a white cisgender uh, straight pastor. Yeah. So it's Karl okay. Barth. It's um, John Piper. John Piper, Mark Driscoll, uh, you know, just people who are just respected as being theologians and nothing else. And I began to think, um, oh, my goodness, well, those people are just theologians because they're understood as being normal, as being as having an objective understanding of God, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. No one does. Mm-hmm. Um, and on and on and on. And I came across this lovely article by James, lovely interview of James Allison, who is a a Roman Catholic priest and theologian who said that he as a gay man had to do theology from a place of survival. Mm -hmm. And I began thinking, oh, so anyone doing theology as a form of survival, as a way to kind of justify even their own existence in the world and in the church to really justify their existence as baptized people in the life of the church, these people are the ones who are kind of relegated to the, to the margins of theology. And so I said, while some do theology from the perches of power, and I'm very specific, the Karl Barts, Stanley Harawas, Will Willimons of the world, some of us read, you know, non-white, non-cisgender, non-male identifying people do theology as a form of survival, as a means of just living, of a me- as a means of just making sense of the world in which we're brutalized so deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of, I'm kind of riff- riffing off of Father Allison's 
idea, but I, I'm riffing because I've experienced it. Mm-hmm. That people think, you know, oh, this isn't valid. You know, so they'll call something a liberation theology because um, they need to write it off. Or I grew up, or I found many white Southern evangelicals who, or former evangelicals who I've talked to, who will say that liberation theology was specifically condemned from their pulpits growing up. And I think, oh, well, that's interesting because even though my pastor might not have called it liberation theology, that's what he was preaching every Sunday. Mm-hmm. That God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of people at the margins. God is on the side of people who are impoverished. I think it helps give some credence to what so many of us have experienced, that mm-hmm. our experiences of God are not seen as valuable as how white men who are straight and cisgender experience God. Right. But, you know, I'm not going to sit outside of their conferences and say, I want you to listen to me. I'm not going to ask them if they'll invite me to speak. People who want to hear about my experience of God will hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to be in this, you know, I don't want to be at the center of attention. I'm not trying to sell myself to get a book deal. You know, I'm not trying to be a bigger voice. I, you know, and that's the thing. None of this was ever anticipated or planned anyway. I never cared to have any attention on Twitter. I'm, I'm saying the same stuff I've been saying on Twitter for six or seven years. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it doesn't matter if I have 19 and a half thousand followers. If I have 19, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. So it does nothing for me to be on a conference stage or on a podcast. You know, I don't care because I know that there are lots of people who are intentionally not inviting me into those spaces. And if I let that, if I really thought about that, that probably would, you know, make me sad Mm -hmm. that people want to discount my voice because I'm black, because I'm gay. But that that's a matter of, of having, you know, a very solid core and really being in a place of security about your identity and knowing that what you're saying is not right just because it's right. It's right because you've experienced it and you're only speaking from your own experience. So, yeah, yeah, I I don't care for big conferences. I don't care for being a name Mm -hmm. um, because many of the people who I reached out to to try to be in conversation with before I was a quote name, um, only started to pay attention after I was a name. So, uh, uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah. What's life like in Memphis? Just like with like, do you have like a squad, if you will, of humans that you do life with? Um, yeah, a, a, quite a, about three friends live here that I went to college with, which is really nice. Mm. And really through them, I've gotten to know a few more people um, in town. I've only been here for a year, so I've tried to be gentle with myself when it comes to kind of racking up friendships. Of course. Um But there's also a small group of us who are very close in college who have multiple group texts and we all talk constantly. 
and friends from seminary who are the same. But life is good here. I mean, I, I really enjoy living in Memphis. It, it's a city with a lot of texture, a lot of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of important things have happened here. A lot of things have been neglected here. Uh, there are huge disparities um, along race lines when it comes to education right. and household income. Huge disparities when it comes to, not disparities, huge blind spots of mm-hmm. white churches in the area, huge blind spots even of black churches in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, people seem to, as a public in our city, uh, have been more excited about Blue Lives Matter than Black Lives Matter. Good. There was a... What? A, actually, if I'm not mistaken, I have been told, and this may just be urban legend, but the whole Blue Lives Matter moniker started in Memphis. That's upsetting. And so there's a huge culture of police support here. Um, even one Sunday, a, a few local pastors decided that they and their parishioners were going to wear blue. Uh, I think this was what, Jul- this was like July 24th, I think. They all decided they were going to blue wear blue uh, to show their support of local police. So, um, so that's kind of, um, you know, Memphis, Memphis, like so many other American cities is a mixed bag. Uh, it has its beautiful pieces of it. It has its grotesque parts, but that is the story of being a human, you know, like, (laughs) right. So it's great, you know, great music, great food, um, lots of different people. It's a great, you know, we're on the Mississippi river. It's a crossroads of cultures, Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I love being here. I like you, Broderick Greer. Do you want to be friends? I thought that we were already friends, but I guess <gasps> I was mistaken. No, it's, I always, I, I always ask people first because I don't want to assume anything. Because for me, it's it's one of these things where like, you know, I could like for example, I could also say that I'm friends with Ellen DeGeneres if because like I know Ellen through Twitter and her presence in the world but I don't really know her and I'm not really friends with her. It's that weird parasocial relationship thing. But now we've said, well, I have coffee in my hand right now. I don't know if you have coffee or tea in yours, but as far as I'm concerned, we've shared a cup. (laughs) All right. That was my conversation with the Reverend Broderick Greer. If you want to connect with him, check him out on Twitter at Broderick Greer. That's B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K. G-R-E-E-R. Um, you can also find him on Facebook at The Rev Broderick Greer and on his website and blog, BroderickGreer.com. Thanks for joining me for a Black History Month Encore episode, friends. I really hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks, as always, to my amazing supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Patreon, if you didn't know, is an easy way for you to give back to the creatives you love who make the content you consume in a practical way. It's a, it's a way for you to invest in the work and make sure that it's sustainable and that it gets better. On top of that, there are perks involved with being a sustaining partner. T-shirts and giveaways, daily devotionals, exclusive online communities, and more. So if you like this podcast and you're the kind of person who maybe goes out to eat a couple times a week, maybe you buy your coffee instead of make your coffee at home... 
I bet you have a couple bucks in your back pocket that you'd be willing to give to help create content that is reaching people and helping change some lives in the process. So, uh, if becoming a sustaining partner sounds appealing to you, which I'm sure that it does because you're such a generous human, I know you, you love to give. It's just part of who you are, right? Because you're a good Christian. <laughs> um, you can go over to patreon.com slash Garcia and make your pledge today. On top of that, I'd be super grateful if you could leave a review for A Tiny Revolution in the iTunes store. It's super easy. You can do it on your smartphone, and it's the, probably the easiest way to support this podcast and help get it in front of the people who need it. Finally, I'd love to hear more from you. I'd love to connect with you over on my blog, thekevingarcia.com, where you can comment, uh, leave suggestions, and if you have any ideas for future podcasts, go ahead and leave those in the comment section on the blog. And you can also connect with me across social media on Facebook, Twitter, and on my YouTube channel, all of which can be accessed from my site. That is all from me this week. Join me again next week for another dope conversation. Until then, go see your therapist, call your lover or your PFF, go dancing, eat something delicious, take a nap, take a walk, take a hike if you really are feeling it. Go do some yoga. I don't know. Just do something that makes you feel alive, babe, because you're worth it. Okay? Uh, that's it. Uh, again, my name is Kevin Garcia. This has been another episode of A Tiny Revolution, and we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Bye, honey. Bye.